Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. I want to remind you that next Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m., we're going to have a time to pray over the city of Hot Springs up on West Mountain. Prayer on the Mountain. Uh, Be on the lookout for that. We'll continue to promote that this week. But next Sunday, February 4th at 4 p.m., up on top of West Mountain as we pray for our community that we truly could make many more disciples in 2024. Now that said, let me give you a preview of coming attractions starting next week. Uh, You know, one of the biggest questions we ask at Crossgate Church every single Sunday is simply this, what does the Bible say? Man, we got so much going on in our world today, I believe we need to ask that question about several topics that are at the forefront of our minds and in the news over the next couple of months. What does the Bible say? And listen, we are going to kick this thing off next Sunday with this question, what does the Bible say about gambling? Now you say, gambling? I I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon about gambling. Well, I'll tell you what, it is high time that we do ask that question uh, because I can't sit down and watch a football game, whether it's on Saturday or Sunday anymore, or, or any other sporting event for that matter, without being bombarded by all this online betting and all this digital gambling and all the rest. So we're going to ask that question. What does the Bible say about gambling? The week after that, we're going to ask this question. What does the Bible say about sex and dating? And yes, parents, there will be something for your children to be doing in the 930 hour, so they will not be in here. They'll be engaged with ministry elsewhere on our campus. We're going to talk later in the series about what does the Bible say about money and politics. Uh, We're actually going to do one on this. What does the Bible say about women's roles in the church? That's a hot topic today in in Christian circles. And we want to know, again, we're not afraid at Crossgate Church to ask that question about any topic because we're not afraid of the truth. And we always want to ask that question, what does the Bible say? Now today I would ask you to find Matthew chapter 9 as we continue. Actually, we're wrapping up our teaching series many more in 24. Many more disciples. That's what we're asking God to produce through us and and through the efforts of our church and the filling of the Holy Spirit to lead many more men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Of course, our purpose statement at Crossgate Church is very, very simple. We make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what God has called us to do. Uh, Making more disciples, of course, so that there's no misunderstanding, is when we are leading men and women, boys and girls, to place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and to be saved, to become followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. And listen, this many more in 24, some people have said, man, it looks like a political yard sign. You get the point. We're in in an election year, 2024, and, and everyone's going to tell us that Uh, You know, the election in 2024 is the biggest, most important election in our entire history of our nation. But I will tell you, compared to making many more disciples, any election to include the one that will take place later this year is peanuts. Compared to the calling that God has placed on us to lead men and women, boys and girls, to trust Jesus Christ. By the way, I want to reiterate something I said at the beginning of this teaching series. Many more in 24 is our teaching series for January. But the theme will continue throughout the year. You see, this theme transcends any given teaching series. It transcends any given ministry, any specific ministry or program we have at Crossgate Church. We are asking God to create a culture 
of making many more disciples for Jesus Christ here at Crossgate Church. So this is not the end. Yes, this is the last message in the series, but this is not the end. Reminds me of a wedding I did several years ago, and at the end of the wedding ceremony, the young groom, the young man walked up to me and he mopped the sweat off of his forehead. He said, whew, I'm glad that's over. I said, son, it's not over. It's just getting started. Well, that's exactly where we are with making many more disciples. This sermon series may be over, but we're just getting started, friends. And today, we're going to talk about this topic, the power of a praying church and the power of ascending church. Now, Matthew chapter 9, let's hear this from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Two things I want you to see today, the first of which is this, the indelible marks of ascending church. What exactly are the things that characterize a church that is sending its people out to be witnesses to make many more disciples? Well, there's three marks specifically that come from this passage, the first of which is the most obvious, and that's love. The mark of ascending church is going to be love for people. Now, Jesus was all about love, right? Love sent Jesus to the earth. Love drove Jesus' earthly ministry. Love held him to the cross, and love caused him to burst forth from the grave. Love. And Jesus, we, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus had a deep, a, a deep-seated compassion, an authentic compassion for people. Luke chapter 19, I love this passage. Look at this. As Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace, but now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus stood over the city, and he wept. He was broken. And I will tell you, one of the key marks of a loving church is that that church and the people of that church are broken over the spiritual condition of the people in the community. Years ago, an old-time preacher preached a sermon with this title, A Dry-Eyed Church in a Hell-Bound World. I heard another preacher years ago ask a question that was borderline corny, but nevertheless very pointed when he said this, when was the last time you shed a tear for some soul that's been mortgaged to the devil? Now this isn't about the amount of water that we can generate out of our eyes, and it's not about a, a corny question that some preacher asked years ago, but it's about a sincere brokenness of compassion for people. Jesus saw the people, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus saw the people as, as troubled and, and harassed. You know anybody like that in Garland County? This is the divorce capital of America, I'm told. There's more divorces in Arkansas than any other state. Families are falling apart. People are struggling. 
And God asks his people, are you broken over the condition of people? Not just certain people, like your family member or maybe your grandson or granddaughter or, or, or maybe a friend that you've known for years way back in high school. Jesus asks us, are we broken over everybody? Pastor Ken Witten was sharing at our state evangelism conference this week. He said this, if you don't desire to see everyone saved, you probably won't see anybody saved. Did you know that? But where does this love for people begin? Do we somehow generate it on our own, pulling ourselves up by our compassionate bootstraps? Here's the key. Love for people begins with a love for God. Did you know that? I was reading just last week in our Bible reading plan that we have here at Crossgate Church. Uh, Many of you who are doing discipleship groups or maybe you're reading this Bible reading plan on your own are, are familiar with this reading because we all did it. Just last week, Psalm 18, verse 1, I did a here uh, journal entry on this. Psalm 18, verse 1, starts out with these four words, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I'll tell you, that's a, that's a confession that needs to be on our lips on a regular basis, right? In fact, let me just, just for a second, let me have the attention of all the men in the room, all the dads, all the husbands. I want to give you a challenge. The next time you're seated around the dining room table, or some other table, and you've got your family there, maybe your children, or it's just you and your wife, or, or whoever is in your sphere that God has placed in your sphere, I want you to say this as you pray, as you're praying for that meal, and leading your family in prayer, I want you to say this, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I will tell you, that will, that will leave an impression on your family to hear Daddy say that. To hear the husband say that. To hear a man of God say, Jesus, I love you. Because when you begin to love Jesus, you begin to love the things that Jesus loves. You know who Jesus loves? He loves people. Again, Ken Witten said this as well this week. The key to making more disciples isn't loving people, it's loving Jesus. I tell you, that's the love that we need to have, first and foremost, is for the Lord Jesus Christ, affection for the Savior. I'll tell you, God will begin to do a transformative work in your heart so that you begin to have this kind of brokenness, this kind of compassion for people everywhere you go. Love. But here's the second mark, the indelible mark, and that is consciousness. You know, look back in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus Christ looked across the, 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 the ocean of humanity, and he was, he was reminded of two big facts. You know what they are? Here they are. Fact one and fact two. Fact one, tons and tons and tons of people need the peace of God. Fact two, many of God's people are completely oblivious to fact one. That's exactly what Jesus pointed out, right? Again, at this evangelism conference I attended this week, a pastor from Arizona named No Garcia Uh, was sharing, and he said, you know, there's two cultures that every church must fight against, the culture of complacency and the culture of assumption. The culture of complacency and the culture of assumption. And when you add those two together, the culture of complacency plus the culture of consumption, uh, assumption, you know what you get? The spiritual status quo. Spiritual status quo, that's it. That's what Jesus was confronting in Matthew chapter 9, the spiritual status quo. You've got a lot of people that need the Lord, but only a few people that are actually getting after it and letting people know about it. That's the spiritual 
status quo. And I might point something out to you, friends. Jesus had to constantly take his disciples back to this. You know what that tells me? Even the best people in our churches need to be constantly reminded of the harvest in front of us. Even the best people need that reminder. John chapter 4, look at this. Jesus was talking to his disciples there in Samaria. He's already had this conversation with the woman at the well. She's gone back into town. She's bringing half the town with her to come back out and see Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus says to his disciples, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest, and here comes the Samaritans. Here they come. Here come the people. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus put his finger on the spiritual status quo. Let me ask you this question. Do you think Jesus was satisfied with the spiritual status quo? Do you think he was happy with, with what was taking place? I don't think so. I remember an Army Ranger Sergeant Major, I mean an old grizzled veteran, just an old guy. He said one time, and I'll never forget, he said, you know, you can be happy with results, but never be satisfied. Because when you get satisfied, you stop moving forward. You get complacent. You, you get lazy. Let me ask you a couple questions. But when was the last time you personally invited someone to come and, and join you for worship and teaching at Crossgate Church? When was the last time that happened? Okay, another question. When was the last time you invited someone and they came? And, and, and you had someone there at, at church, and, and, and they came on your invitation. When was the last time you personally invited someone, you shared the gospel with someone, maybe you shared your own personal testimony with someone, and, and you invited them to be saved, and, and, and they trusted Christ? When was the last time you personally led someone to Christ? When was the last time you attempted that? Trust me, I'm not laying all those questions out there to put people on a big old guilt trip. That's not the point. But the point is there is a spiritual status quo that is, that is infecting our churches like a cancer. And unless we're aware of it, even, even to be aware of these facts is super important. I doubt you are satisfied with the answers to your questions. I'm not happy and satisfied with the answers to those questions when I answer them. If nothing else, I pray that God brings us back to those two facts today and for many of us, wakes us from our spiritual stupor. Fact one, tons and tons and tons of people need the peace of God. Fact two, many of God's people, even many of God's best people, are completely oblivious to fact one. Consciousness. Jesus had a consciousness in Matthew chapter 9, but there was also action. There's your third mark of a sending church. I mean, we can talk all day about, man, we just love people so much, and yes, we're so aware of, of, of the spiritual landscape in our, in our community, but without action, are we really ascending church? Now, notice, what, what was the action that Jesus called for? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out into the harvest. And so the disciples begin to pray, oh, Lord, please send laborers out into the harvest. And you know what happened? The disciples ended up being the answer to their own prayers. Did you know that? Chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, look at this. Jesus, this is immediately, by the way, after Jesus said, pray that God would send workers and laborers out into the harvest. 
Jesus called his 12 disciples together and sent them out. Matthew chapter 10 follows Matthew chapter 9. Yes, thank you, Captain Obvious. They prayed, and Jesus sent them. Please understand this, church. God is not just laying a burden for people on our hearts without the expectation that we step into the lives of those people. You, me, the people around you. God has placed you there. Some of you work and you say, man, I work in the worst place in the world. I feel like I work for the devil himself. God has you there for a purpose beyond simply making a paycheck. Wherever it is you find yourself, Lakeside, Lake Hamilton, some other school district, wherever you are, God has you there for a purpose to take action. Next time someone asks you, hey, how can I pray for you? Here's something you can tell them. Colossians 4, 3 and 4, look at this. Pray for us that God will give us many opportunities to speak about the gospel of Christ. Pray that I will proclaim this message clearly as I ought to. Action. Hey, we talk about many more in 24, but I tell you what, without action, we ain't going to see any more in 24. Right? Hey, action. This is just one coming to me right now. Daniel 11, verse 32. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So that's the first thing we need to see. But now I want to get super, super practical. Here's the second point. The intentional actions of a sending church. You know, we're not as intentional as we think we are, right? I mean, that's true in almost any walk of life, anything we do. We're never as intentional as we think we are. But God has called us to get into people's lives. Not to sit back passively and say, well, somebody else will get that. God has called us to get in to people's lives. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, go to the Billy Graham Museum there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Billy Graham, of course, the greatest uh, evangelist, preacher of the gospel in the 20th century. And I would encourage you, if you're ever near Charlotte, North Carolina, go to the museum. It is, it is uh, very, very inspirational. And the guy who was walking us around giving us a tour of this place... Uh, was just telling us about some of the uh, things that you know, Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association were able to pull off over the course of, of the ministry. And then he said, but you know what will blow your mind is the ideas that Billy Graham had to get into people's lives that never panned out. I said, like what? Just g- give me an example. He said, Billy Graham, this is back like in the 1960s, 1970s now. Billy Graham had this idea where they would, they would make a little machine with a TV on it. And it had a preloaded movie about Jesus on, on, the, on the, the, the machine. And they were going to put a parachute on this machine and fly over the jungles of Africa and drop this thing out of the airplane. And when it landed near a village, little solar panels would deploy and the video would crank up and it would be in the language of the people. I mean, in, in other words, taking this machine someplace where, where people couldn't go or whatever, right? It was just this, this wild idea. But it never worked out. But that was the kind of level of thinking that he had. What can I do, God? Please, we'll do anything to get into the lives of people and share Jesus Christ with them. Now, here's the good news. I'm not going to put a parachute on any of y'all and kick y'all out over the jungle, okay? I promise. But I'm going to give you a few, a few things this morning, a few practical things. We're just going to list them off. These are simple things that I guarantee you God wants you to incorporate into your lives personally 
and that God wants us to incorporate in our church or even maximize that much more if they're already present. Okay, so I'm just going to give them to you. You've got a handout there. You can write them down as well. Here's the first thing. Develop a soul consciousness. We've touched on this already. But I'll tell you, again, even the best of God's people need to be reminded of this. What's a soul consciousness? It is the realization and the conviction, the consciousness, that every single person you meet, whether they're in your family, whether they're some waitress out in town, whether they're whomever, work associate, neighbor, it doesn't matter. Every single person you meet falls into one of two categories, saved or lost. Saved or lost. Every single person you meet is either saved or lost. That really simplifies things, doesn't it? I mean, only one of two categories. There is no third category. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either following Jesus and you've received forgiveness for your sins through Jesus Christ, or you haven't. And for those people who haven't, we want to get into their lives and to help them to understand how they too can know the Jesus that we know. Soul consciousness, got to have it. Here's the second one. Pray for lost people by name. All right, pray for lost people by name. And, I, and I'll make this even more practical. Yes, you should be praying for lost people by name in your home or wherever you might have your, your personal time with God. But let's talk about it at the church level. Okay, where are some of the places at Crossgate Church where we gather for prayer and we share prayer requests? Well, hopefully life groups, hopefully life groups are praying and sharing prayer requests. We have a staff prayer time on Wednesday mornings where the staff, we all gather together with pastors and, and other staff members and pray. Uh, we have prayer at our key meetings for our elders and trustees and so forth and, and other places as well, discipleship groups, D groups that we have throughout the week. So here's the challenge. Whenever you gather together, and, and life group leaders and other ministry leaders, this is the challenge specifically for you because I need you to set the pace in this. Next time you have a time for prayer, and, and everyone's sharing about all the sicknesses and everything else that's out there, and that's fine, we'll pray for that. Start mentioning people by name, lost people that you know, and say, I'm praying that this person will be saved, and that God would give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Pray for them by name. I would tell you we would be shocked, we would be disheartened if we went to all the different life groups and all the different meetings at Crossgate Church that take place throughout the week and other ministries and so forth at, at, at the lack of prayer for lost people by name. Life group, when was the last time your life group prayed for a lost person by name? God will bring these people to your heart. They'll, they'll bring you to your consciousness. Keep them in front of you. Keep them in prayer. Pray for lost people by name. Okay, here's the third one. Ask accountability questions about gospel conversations. Now, this primarily can happen in discipleship groups, but it can happen in other places as well. Speaking of discipleship groups, uh, those of you who have been a part of a discipleship group, many of you have said, you know, I've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years, and I've never read my Bible as consistently as I have in my entire life since I became a, a part of this discipleship group. Why? Because there's an aspect of accountability. I mean, if you're meeting once a week and you're going to share some here journals that you've done and share what God has told you through the, the Scripture and how He's been speaking to you, that obviously assumes that you've read the Bible coming up to that group gathering, right? There's, there's a certain level of accountability. And I will tell you that, that part of a discipleship group and part of other ministries at our church that have opportunities for accountability, this should be a question. You gather with four or five people or whoever it is in your context and say, hey, 
let's talk about the gospel conversations we've had this week. If you know that's coming up, guess what? You're probably going to be more apt to be sharing the gospel and having some type of interaction on this level with people, right? There's an accountability aspect. And I, listen, I'll be totally honest with you, flat, flat up honest. And I think most of my discipleship group guys are in this room. I have let this fall off in our discipleship group. We have not been doing this as we should. And God reminded me of that this week. Ask accountability questions about gospel conversations. Is there someone in your life who's going to ask you this question sometime in the next few weeks? Hey, man, tell me about any gospel conversations you've had in the last couple weeks. If not, you're much less likely to have them. Same thing. Am I asking that question to somebody? Include accountability questions about gospel conversations. Here's the next one. Incorporate invite cards into your daily rhythms. Let's put our invite card up there. Many of you are familiar with this. We've got a ton of them in the rack right out there by the front doors of the church. Super, super simple. You're invited, service times, address, and most importantly, the website. Because very few people are going to come to our church and check us out and visit uh, unless they first checked out our website and they probably watched several services. I talk to people all the time who say, you know what, we watched your sermons for two months before we ever set foot at Crossgate Church. Wonderful, that's fine. But an invite card, here's a couple things an invite card does. One, it gives people something to see. And I think we all understand that people only remember 30% of what they hear, but they remember 70% of what they see. And so if you're inviting someone randomly to come to church, that's good. But if you place something physical and tangible in their hands with some specific information on it, driving them to our website, that's awesome. And I will tell you, this is a habit that needs to be in, in, the, in the heart and the life of every single person listening to the sound of my voice. Guys, I hope you have a small stack of invite cards in your wallet. Ladies, I hope you have a small stack of Crossgate invite cards in your purse. To take one of those things out and hand it to someone, anybody, remember, save your lost, soul consciousness, handing it to anybody you meet at Crossgate, excuse me, in the community. Pulling one of those cards out of your purse or your wallet should be just as instinctive as pulling your credit card out to pay for a meal or pay for some other item. Just as, just as instinctive as pulling your driver's license out. It's that simple, but it's a rhythm of life. And you've got to establish that. Ask God to establish that in your life if it's not currently there. Grab some invite cards and don't leave a conversation when you have it with anybody over anything. Say, hey, I'd like to invite you to Crossgate Church sometime. Here, just check out our website. Check out Pastor Phil's messages. Check out our worship, that type of thing. I'm, I'm telling you, this is one of, the, one of the basic intentional actions of ascending church. Incorporate invite cards into your daily rhythms. Here's another one. Change your schedule to make room for gospel conversations. Man, we are busy people. Busy, busy, busy. But would you be willing to set up a lunch sometime and eat lunch with somebody? for the express purpose of talking to them about their faith, talking to them about where they're at with the Lord, changing up your schedule in some other ways. Listen, presence communicates priority. Presence communicates priority. I, in my own life, over the course of this series, I have changed up some things in my calendar in the week so that I'm devoting more time on Thursdays to gospel conversations and evangelistic breakfasts and evangelistic lunches. Just this past Thursday, man, I, I rearranged some things on the calendar so that I could meet with one guy at breakfast and talk to him about his faith in Christ 
And then I had lunch with another guy that I've been witnessing to for the last over a year and a half now. I had a, had a conversation with him on Thursday to follow up and just continue to press the claims of Jesus with this guy, right? I mean, there, there's, there's something about changing your calendar that, that demonstrates to God, yes, this is a priority for me. Here's another one. Go beyond a public appeal to a personal appeal. Okay, a public appeal is something like what I do on Sunday mornings. You know, at the end of almost every single message, I talk about admitting that, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose again bodily and physically from the grave, and I want to receive Christ. That's a public appeal over the, over the masses. And we have many ministries that offer a public appeal of some kind at Crossgate Church. Membership Matters. We've got Membership Matters coming up in a, in a few weeks. And, uh, and, and, and we give a public appeal across everybody there to say, hey, you know what? If you haven't trusted Christ, this is a great time to get your salvation settled. Uh, our Wednesday night ministries, Reengage, Regen, other ministries, there is a public appeal, a public sharing of the gospel either through one of the testimonies or the videos from Regen or whatever. I mean, we're making a lot of public appeals. But here's something that we know, and we know all too well. Just because someone hears a public appeal doesn't necessarily mean it's really getting in. You know what a personal appeal is? That's when I sit down one-on-one -on -one, or maybe one-on-two, -on -two, just a very small setting, and I look somebody personally in the eye and I ask them some very key and pointed questions about their faith. And you know, what, you know what we've discovered? There's people that will sit through a public appeal here, and they'll hear it many times, or in regen, or re-engage, or other things, but when you actually get down one-on-one -on -one with that person, they're not really saved. They can't even answer the most basic question that they've received Christ, even though they've heard the public appeal over and over again. You know, you talk about a personal appeal. It comes down to two, as simple as two questions. Let's put those two questions up there. Two simple questions. Have you come to a place in your spiritual life, and you can word it however you want, where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? That's a very basic question, and I'm telling you, that is a pointed question. Second question. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Two very key Questions. I told you a few weeks ago, some of you life group leaders, you don't really know you've got more people in your life group than you've really tracked down and had one-on-one -on -one conversations with. If you sat down and asked these two key questions to people in your life group, you might be shocked at the number of people in your life group that don't even know for certain that they're going to heaven. They couldn't even tell you there's been a time that they personally trusted Jesus Christ. Yes, a personal, excuse me, yes, a public appeal ha has power and merit. It's important that we share that. I, I was saved off of a public appeal. Uh, I started going to a church in Central Florida when I was 17 years old, did the exact same thing that I do here. Just a very clear appeal, public appeal, after every service. And after about three services, I said, I need to get on, on this. I went home after Sunday night church, knelt down by my bed, and pretty much led myself to the Lord. I said, Pastor Guy says that, that that every person needs to know what, what they've done with Jesus Christ and so forth and so on. And I received Christ right there. But for most people, a personal appeal is, is needed. A personal appeal, one-on-one. -on -one. And I want to challenge every one of our ministry leaders, regen, re-engage, men's ministry, women's ministry, different ministries, life groups, take leaders, take the time 
to one-on-one, -on -one, talk to the people who attend your ministries. Don't assume anything just because they've heard a public appeal. Right. Here's the next one. Every ministry increases intentionality, which is really just a, an extension of what I just told you. We need, at Crossgate Church, we need every ministry, whatever it is, to look around at the people that are attending and engaged in your ministry and begin to get more intentional of speaking into the individual lives and if it takes an, an extra meeting or, or let's meet for a little bit and stay after and, and I set it up and I'm going to sit and talk to John or Susan or whomever and we're going to have that conversation to confirm that they truly understand the gospel and they have gotten their salvation settled. Love them enough to tell them the truth one on one. Let me give you another one. Last one is this, receive training and go together. We've done some of this in the past, but, but in the coming months, I will provide some other opportunities uh, for you as, as followers of Jesus Christ to receive additional training and equipment so that you can step into the lives of someone else and share Christ, to go. Now, I got it. When, when, when we hear the word go, we're normally thinking like, well, we're going to go to the Amazon way around the world, or we're going to go to Uganda, or we're going to go to Thailand, or, 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 or Vanuatu. Going could be as simple as getting outside of yourself and engaging someone in your own home, or someone next door, or someone at work. Going doesn't have to mean a plane ride or, or a long trip around the world. Going simply means you're, you're taking the focus off yourself and focusing on the spiritual needs of someone else. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.